0: That's cool. And I think one of the things, like, at least for school board stuff, like, I, I get it that like not everyone's that into it. Um, because they're like, why well, I either don't have a kid in the system or right. I'm not an educator, so they feel like it's not for them. But it's like, it is for you, and you pay for it. You pay for so it. So I'm like, yeah. everyone should listen to this.
1: This is Van Collar. We're
0: at the West Coast. <laughs>
1: My name is Moamir, and today on This is Van Culler, I'm joined by an educator and advocate for some of the most vulnerable students in Vancouver's school system. She holds a Master's in Social Policy and Development from the London School of Economics, a Bachelor's in Development Studies from the University of Calgary, and a Certificate in Curriculum Development and Instructional Design from Mount Royal University. She has championed a Sanctuary Schools policy, and is a founder of EdMico, an organization using mentorship programs to support students in their educational goals. Representing friends of the podcast, one city, Vancouver. She is committed to building an inclusive community that drives educational leadership in the city. Her top three priorities have been to prevent school closures, fully staff schools, and increase childcare spaces. A Vancouver school board trustee, she is jennifer ready jennifer how are you
0: hi mo i'm really well i feel so lucky to be here with you thank
1: you for the invitation oh thanks for coming i appreciate you being here uh this is one of those topics where i'm coming into it and i don't know anything about it like i'm really here to learn and i think it's an important topic so uh so i'm looking forward to uh to learning awesome (laughs) i'm excited so let's start from the very beginning can you just explain to me what is school board and how does it work in terms of its organizational relationship with the province which I assume ultimately funds education and city council and you know what you do as a trustee how can you make sense of this for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure everyone has their own version of this. So for me so far, mm-hmm. um, not speaking on behalf of the board, but on behalf of myself, um, I was just elected in in October. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm learning the ropes and I'm getting a pretty strong sense that because we can't tax individuals and we don't collect um, our own revenue from the public, that we're dependent on the ministry for all educational funding. So our relationship is really managing and overseeing that fiduciary responsibility to manage funds uh open, closed programs, um, welcome students into the school, support teachers, okay. um, that kind of thing. And then in terms of uh, the city of Vancouver, it takes a lot of different shapes. For me personally, I feel there's so much um, happening in terms of context of our city, where neighborhood schools are uh, more crucially needing to be reflected in city plans and city plans more crucially need to be reflected in school planning.
1: Oh, okay. That makes sense. So, I'm going to go full basic bro on this just so I understand. Uh, The province funds schooling and education, and basically, school boards act as like the on the ground. manager types is that right
0: that's right yeah so with nine trustees um together um none of us represent any majority political parties Mm -hmm. so we're five parties actually represented lots of different perspectives Yeah. yeah um and so together the nine of us would be responsible for like constituent input engaging public engaging students families um general community members, business owners to participate in the public system.
1: Oh, okay. So and that, so that's your that's your role as school board trustees is to engage the community a little
0: more. Absolutely, Informed decision making. So for me ethically, that's sort of my higher calling is how can I be a participant
1: and a conduit to informed decision making. Sure. Now in now with five different parties represented on school board, do you find it's as partisan as perhaps other uh, political bodies such as city council or parliament or in victoria or is it maybe slightly different because you have such a i i'm just thinking it's it's so much more community based right
0: yeah i would say something really cool um about being among individuals who have chosen this path of mm-hmm. trusteeship um and school board governance is the values around teachers students and education so i guess we can say that in that way um We have our own perspectives, but our values and principles that guide us there, I feel, um, have a lot of synergies, um, which may be different than what you see on city council. Some folks might be champions for certain issues or certain topics in the city, which does happen at the educational level. But at the end of the day, we're all there for education. Mm -hmm. So there is some uh, sort of focus.
1: Right. And I guess that's reflective of the fact that no party swept school board, right? Like it it seems to be more based on the individuals, at least the uh, people in Vancouver that voted seem to vote more on individuals than just parties, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um, now, when you ran for school board in the last municipal election, you had three priorities, the first of which was to stop school closures. And from my understanding, due to the pressure to cut costs, and the need for seismic upgrades, the Vancouver School Board is faced with what some would call the obvious solution of just closing down schools with low enrollment. But before we get into school closure specifically, let's talk about the pressure to cut costs and the need for seismic upgrades. So let's go with the first one. Why is the Vancouver School Board facing pressures to cut costs?
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about that perception a lot, Mo, and I think even positioning the question that way suggests that we're trying to cut corners. And it's, that's it's not no what I'm suggesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, But
1: I'm just, that's how you read it in the news media of this pressure to uh, reduce costs.
0: Yes, I, I, I totally see what you mean. And I think um, the pressure comes from the fact that we're dealing with um, uh, several seismic projects throughout mm-hmm. the district so i think the average uh, age of buildings is in 70 year range okay and so they're really it's old infrastructure and so the pressure is that um in the event of a seismic uh in the in a seismic event that um and we're talking earthquakes yes yeah. in that event the main purpose is to ensure that when children are in our buildings that they're safe mm-hmm. and and that that process happens as quickly as possible. And so the pressure comes when the seismic projects are going through and the funding only covers the um, building space to suit students that live in that particular area. Okay. But in Vancouver, that area... Um, And all over BC, that area um, that's considered is only for enrolling space. So when you have libraries, um, places for hot lunch, spiritual spaces, uh, gyms, washrooms, Mm -hmm. these aren't included in the space calculations. Washrooms are not? No, nope.
1: really. Okay, interesting.
0: Yeah, and when you have a sexual orientation and gender identity policy that's yeah. as uh, leading as ours, mm-hmm. you're going to need spaces that accommodate the way we're thinking differently about education and children of who are in our in our uh, schools. So yeah, so the pressure there um, that comes down then is that if you want to expand your space to accommodate these very essential learning spaces. Mm -hmm. City of Reconciliation, could you imagine a school without a spiritual space? Right. Right. So if we want that, we need to find the funds ourselves. And that's the directive. So that's where the cost pressures are coming in.
1: Interesting. Okay. So when you're talking about that, are you talking about um, the expansion of schools or these, these old buildings just need these upgrades, even if you were to keep the buildings as they were?
0: In some cases, yes, it's an expansion because we know, for example, Squamish Nation's housing announcement mm-hmm. um, will increase pressure of students of um, course, in that yeah. area. Um, and so, if we're not able to articulate that or sort of have evidence that these students and families are moving in, um, we can, it puts us in an interesting position to A, tell the context back to the ministry, but B, um, if we're not funded for these additional spots, then we need to find the funds ourselves. Right. And in other cases, it may be like Hamburg. Um, I I know that's been a topic on folks' minds lately. And that instance um, of an expansion is only going to cover the um, existing catchment numbers of students. So that means that the school actually won't even be built to size to accommodate the programs that are there. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the auditorium space isn't guaranteed. And so um, it puts us in a difficult situation
1: okay and we'll get we'll get to Hamburg in, in a little bit um but I'm I'm just finding this really fascinating because I read that 16 out of the 18 secondary schools in Vancouver earned you know a very poor to poor rating in the uh, facility condition index uh, which basically means that all these schools and, and I think it's beyond secondary schools as well the total number uh, of dollars required for these seismic upgrades is three quarters of a billion dollars I'm still just trying to wrap my head around this idea of like, uh, of update of updating these aging schools. Like, is this just a matter of bad timing? Like, all these buildings kind of got old at once, and and there wasn't really planning for that, or was or is this a matter of lack of foresight in terms of allocating resources and funds towards these upgrades? Uh, why have we allowed our school facilities to deteriorate to the to this condition? And also, in addition to that, what you're saying. You know, why does there seem to be a, a certain lack of foresight when it comes to the funds that are allocated for seismic upgrades?
0: Yeah, Mo, I think you answered your own question. It's a I, I did. Oh, yeah. OK. <laughs> You're good. You should run next time. <laughs> yeah, it's Please a explain. combination of all of that. It's a combination of all of that. I think... Um, yeah, like if I can kind of zoom out for a second of like, why is the conversation of infrastructure important? Not only for folks who have kids in the school, but for educators and families who um, also know of kids in the school is mm-hmm. that this is all public infrastructure. So this is infrastructure that's there for all of us. Communities use it before school care, after school care, lunch programs, um, in evening hours, sports groups. So these are spaces that are ours to um, be stewards of into the future. So yeah, when you see a $790 million deferral in maintenance yeah um which means that that could be like paint and carpet and other types of boilers things in the building that um need updating that equal this amount of 700 790 million dollars mm-hmm. um that for me it begs the question of like what our expectation of learning spaces um is for all students right um it's not that for me and so yeah, yeah you're right that i that At the same time that you have these pressures, schools are aging at the same time. And we've got this um, amazing opportunity with seismic upgrades Mm -hmm. to bring them up to standard. And on top of that, for me personally, I feel like my role is to build the context of Vancouver, which is um, places are getting rezoned, families are moving in. We want to make a city where kids can feel that they're included Mm -hmm. and that they can see we are including their voice in planning because guess what, they don't have a voting seat at the table. So yeah, it is our responsibility to bring that forward
1: hmm Yeah. It's, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, in researching uh, this topic, I realized it was a big problem. But now listening to you, I feel like it's even bigger than I imagined.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm the bear of bad news. But I have so much um, optimism because I feel like we're having the conversations we need to, but we have to push it further. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we're hearing every day from kids and families and educators that we need to reflect new spaces with the ability to accommodate at least the existing program and services, um, if not more, so that we can be available for students to the next hundred years when these buildings inevitably age. Mm -hmm.
1: Let's talk about a a couple of schools in particular. I I read about Queen Alexandra Elementary School on East Broadway. Uh, That's been highlighted highlighted as an example of a school that is only using 62% of its capacity. But you've gone on record to say that the data on this school, uh, Queen Alexandra, doesn't actually tell the whole story. So what's happening there? Because this is one of those schools that uh, could possibly be shut down.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I love the topic of data because um, I'm a big passionate person for like social policy and policies that are designed um, without um, uh Policies that are not designed with a view to be one-size-fits-all and to be reviewed in 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. So the way we use data now, either for um, planning, for improvements, for evaluation, is so important because we are trying to tell a story about a situation in a community, and there's 114 schools. So certainly any uh, measuring tool that is used uh, across the board will have its strengths and its limitations. Sure. So in this case, the reason why um, I I want to be clear that it tells us one aspect of what's going on in schools, but there's a whole lot more that we're learning when we actually talk to students that go to those schools, that walk the halls, that walk to that school and back home at the end of the day, um, what makes them feel safe, what makes them feel included on their way to, at, and then from school. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I've learned a lot in in the cases of schools like Queen Alexandria or AR Lord for that matter is that... Um, When you have a low capacity utilization rate, it doesn't mean that you won't go to that school in the middle of the day and find the building half empty. In fact, Mm -hmm. in the case of A.R. Lord, you will actually find um, two vulnerable youth programs occupying half of the building. But these vulnerable youth programs are non-enrolling, like um, seen as extra spaces. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so. But they're um, full time? Yeah, that's right. So there's uh, vulnerable youth there um, accessing programs. And I understand that there's different um, relationships where sometimes you may have VSP staff, sometimes you may have uh, provincial staff or provincial leadership on these programs. But it certainly doesn't mean that they're invisible these kids are not invisible but sometimes in those numbers it feels like they're invisible that there's nothing uh, to be recognized as valuable or um, as a quality program there when in fact there is Um, so I think that piece of information whether it's it's um, who's in the space but also the the qualitative aspect so um, if you've got numbers there's always inevitably going to be a story that goes with that number of
1: course yeah uh when we're talking about the those youths in those different programs and they are full-time so why don't they count in terms of enrollment numbers
0: that's a good question. So in that case of that school, it's an elementary school. And okay. so it's a, it's a specialized program. So another case where you can see that uh, issue coming up is in Hudson Elementary, um, which was also in the media recently for the French immersion um, program relocation okay. yep. that has now uh, been voted as a program phase out mm-hmm. over um, eight years, I believe. Um Yeah, so what's been really interesting about that is that French Immersion is a district program. And so it's not counted in the capacity utilization of a particular area because it's a district program. So technically, that program can go anywhere.
1: And again, this is
0: my understanding of my interpretation is like, I'm sure many people will be like, oh, Jennifer, you don't know. And that's the (laughs) point, that a single person is not meant to make a decision on behalf of all of this. But I need to continually stay informed. And part of the long-range facilities plan, thankfully, is engagement and conversation consultation with the public. I'd love to see more. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the most valuable input I've had, the only reason I can speak with you today about the situation in particular schools is because I've heard from kids, parents, community members that live and participate in activities at that school. Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise, if I just sat at the board table and went to like my job at SFU every day, I don't think I would have a full, complete picture of what it is I'm being asked to decide on, and yeah. so Hudson, yeah, like that. Just it's a district program, so you wouldn't see the the utilization um, as accurately.
1: Yeah, and I, I imagine if you just saw the quote unquote hard data, you know, you wouldn't, as you just said, you wouldn't see the the whole story. So it's It sounds like you're doing your job. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. I yeah, but but, but I mean, because you yourself just outlined that it is that liaison between the community, and you have to be sort of there and talking to people and and understanding what the community needs are. And if you were not you specifically, but if someone was in an ivory tower just looking at, you know, oh, this school is under capacity and just looking at the hard data, quote unquote, they wouldn't get that full story of the other programs and how the school actually. Is being utilized.
0: Yeah, and then what happens when when those when those consolidations happen? And if consolidations in terms of like programs being amalgamated, um, there's there's definitely value to um, combining resources and bringing people together, including staff and students. Um, but those who can access will, and those who can't won't. So sure. some of those decisions are the difference between kids getting to school and kids never getting to school. Sure.
1: Yeah. When it comes to Queen Alexandra or some of these other schools. What happens to the students the students in question if the school is shut down, both the students who are technically enrolled and then these other students, the the sort of uh, vulnerable students as well? What happens to them?
0: Yeah, that's a big question. And I, I don't want to generalize um, the situation because that's the context that I feel like um, when it becomes generalized, it becomes very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of um, what I want to add to this conversation is around the individuals I have heard from who have mentioned um, that they don't have a vehicle or a bus pass or income for a bus pass to get their kid to school in the morning or their kids to school in the morning and back home. Or their out-of-school care is in one area and their, their K-7 to seven is in another area. Right,
1: right. And so
0: when we're talking about children, like under the age of 12, mm-hmm. um, that's a significant decision. That's a significant transition on the life of that student. Absolutely. Um and so that impact really gives me pause to think about how those decisions would enable or um, inhibit a person from accessing their education.
1: Yeah. And, and so the, the case of Queen Alexandra, as you said, this is not an isolated case. There's other schools that are also facing similar situations where they're under, basically under threat of closing down and they seem to have low enrollment numbers, but that's not actually the story.
0: Yeah, and like you had mentioned, the the issue around vulnerable youth. I mean, we've heard from some parents who are like, well, I guess I'll just go to another school if something is consolidated or closed. Yeah. Um, and then in another instance um, where folks are like, I don't know where I would go. And so your vulnerability mm-hmm. um, varies for different families. And some folks haven't even heard about the conversation yet right. at their schools and they're just finding out now. And so I should mention that while we're in progress still and there's still time to be a part of the decision-making process for the long-range facilities plan, we've mm-hmm. got new guidelines from the minister of Education that require consultation, that require a lens on equity and reconciliation, okay. that's asking for a reflection of BC statistical data um, to to complement our data, which is um, a Baraguard data system, which is a private data set. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that's still happening. And the board recently um, voted against adding um, school closures to that plan. And so that's been a really um, important uh, piece of leadership, I feel like, that um, we've taken and that I've been a part of. Um, but it's ongoing. The conversation is still ongoing, and there's still a lot of uh, conversations that need to be had.
1: Okay, interesting. Now, in the context of all of this, uh, and in contrast to perhaps the hard data that's showing that some schools are underutilized, even though, as we've just talked about, they might not be, there are some schools like Lord Bing, Secondary, and King George, where the hard data is showing that they are overcapacity, right? How big is this problem in terms of some schools having way too many kids?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's such a good question. And I mean, there's a lot of people working on this topic. So take my perspective um, as a perspective among many. Um, but I, I'm personally very confused about out of catchment and boundaries, because mm-hmm. it seems like those who can apply for school programs elsewhere do. And they get there and they go back. So you may live um, Uh, in South Vancouver and be going to the West End for school for whatever reason because you're going for a specific program or you used to live there and you feel connected to the school etc so there's lots of movement that it makes it difficult to understand who's in that school that's kind of living in the area and who's not and then um, what happens to those schools that are becoming uh, more empty, and sort of that competitive feeling between schools and where people end up staying and where people end up going? Who mm-hmm. gets to stay and who have, who gets to move?
1: At the start and the end of the new, uh, at the start and the end of the school year, I should say, these things aren't tracked.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they are, and there's a lot of work that I've been learning about that goes into that. So I think that it's. Something that we need to learn about within the scope of each individual program. But no matter what, um, no student should have to choose between going to school and not. It's like if you want to go to a certain program, we should be making the effort to make sure that you can get there. Mm -hmm. And that should be available to every and all student, regardless of socioeconomic status.
1: Right. Yeah. Okay, uh, you mentioned Eric Hamber Secondary School, so I want to deep dive into that just a little bit as well. Uh, I've been reading about it a little bit. I have a a friend who's a parent, and he's very concerned about what's happening. Um, I'm reading that the new facility is forecasted to be way too small by the time that it opens. In fact, forecasted to be the smallest school per student in Canada what is happening with Eric Hamber secondary? and if we i mean de- demographics in a lot of ways can be glacial. it's it's you can get a fair prediction on you know what what enrollment will be like and, and or how many families or commu- or people will live in a certain community. um why are they building this school so small, seemingly?
0: because that mm-hmm. seems to be
1: the consensus amongst a lot mm-hmm, of parents mm-hmm. in that area,
0: yeah, um, it is. The school is is. too small or the consensus is... Yes. um, No, it is small. So because, um, and as I kind of mentioned about the seismic uh, program, that it's only based on in-catchment students. Yeah. Um, And so if your catchment numbers at that point in time um, reflect a certain number, you're only going to get space in rolling space. So not including the auditorium, the lunch space, the washroom, et cetera, um, in that um, allocated space. So um, I think that... The really big, huge missing piece of all of this conversation is Amber is the spaces where this learning happens. And we've heard from students there, like those are the spaces that make their learning meaningful, that bring them to school every Mm -hmm. day, that keep them at school late, um, that make them feel engaged in their education. So I feel like without those spaces, then what is there? Um, And that's the Canby Corridor. So there's a lot of development going up in that area. Um, that we need to be paying attention to and that um, we need to tell that story and advocate so that um, students in that catchment now, but also into the future, um, would have access to full, meaningful spaces for learning.
1: In in the case of Eric Hamber Secondary School, like, has the plan already been made in terms of making it?
0: Yeah. Um, or, I mean, or can it's... it be
1: changed? Can they make it bigger now? If it is going to be too small, apparently.
0: I mean, I think so. There's so many seismic projects right now, and that is one that I believe that people are still advocating a lot for. That we've heard a lot from individuals in the community. There's been conversations with MLAs, mm-hmm. um, with the city. So I feel like the dialogue is still happening um, in terms of the process and how much we can influence the seismic process is um, dictated or kind of um, guided by the uh, memorandum of understanding. Okay, and so what that is is our agreement with the province and. I guess like what I've found um, also just hearing from parents and students is that if if we don't really learn about these projects until after um, they've kind of come out of this process, then it makes it really challenging for us to influence. So I think um, one of the limitations that I'm seeing is that uh, that I'm hearing about also from parents is that they feel like they don't hear about things until it's too late. Yeah. And so I yeah. want to do a better job of getting ahead of that. So in the case of Hudson, which is still in this project definition report stage, mm-hmm. and so parents who maybe have children that are zero to five or don't have children yet, but may in the future, et cetera, um, or ones who still live in that area, or if you're from Squamish Nation and planning to move into house- housing that may be there in eight years, mm-hmm. um, that we would have a responsibility to um, reflect that in our planning process, planning uh, project definition report process. So I've put forward a motion to consider all of those planning needs, the Broadway line that's coming through. All of that should be a part of that review process, because I feel like this is a a public infrastructure decision that isn't just about a school that lives in a bubble, but about a neighborhood school that serves a variety of needs in that area, but also in broader Vancouver.
1: Sure. Now, I almost want to bring it back to the, the very first question again just cuz i want to keep up and this is all very new and foreign to me. And I don't have kids so i haven't really been keeping an eye on this subject. These these consultations with the community, keeping the community in- informed. This falls upon school board trustees. Is that correct?
0: Um yeah, it's us and it's all of us. Like it's it's um the te- like the teams we work with and and i think like we're Uh, at least for me, like one of the most important things I can do is like things are communicated, um, but it's up to us to make the communication make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of the times, I mean, like you said, like uh, so if if you don't have children, does this matter for you? And I would argue, yes, Mm -hmm. I don't have kids and I'm still, I'm I'm a trustee. (laughs) It's not an eligibility criteria. So you too can be a trustee (laughs) and an advocate for public ed. Um, And I think like a part of that is taking responsibility to look at all of the information and if you find out about something as Mo, mm-hmm. that you would tell people. And, and I feel like that's a lot of what we're doing here right now. Um, so when I worked at the school board, I worked a lot with refugee students okay, yeah. who are coming in in their late teens. Um, and for many of them, English is another language. And so for me, I feel like my lens that I'm bringing as a trustee is to understand, would one of those students understand what we're talking about here? Right. And if not, how do I need to modify the way I'm speaking about this Mm -hmm. in order to make sure it makes sense and that they know what's at stake for them or for their neighbor or for their siblings or their parents? Um, And so I think there's a we are so like bombarded with technology and information overload. And sometimes for me, I just feel like, you know, everyone must be on Twitter. It's like no, no one's. You on know, <laughs> I feel like it's like the same eight people that I yeah. talk to eighty percent of the time. I you know that you of hear course, from, so yeah. it it can feel like the volume's really high on these certain platforms, but that we can't forget the importance of face to face platforms. Course, so yeah, some of my most useful time is in the community, actually listening and sharing what I interpret. Um, as information of what's happening. And I feel like part of this program is that process too. So as I uh, articulate my own experience on the board and my own understanding of projects, um, I know that there's a lot of knowledge gaps that I have, and I think that's a really important platform or sort of jumping board for me to say, like, I do need to continue staying um, alert, reading the reports, but also talking to people in the community
1: so I can continually stay up to date because there's something new every day. Sure. And so the reason I actually asked that question was when you're hearing things from the community or the or the community in, in some Let's just say consensus is saying we need this and we need that. And this is, uh, you know, these plans don't make sense because our community, you know, is different than than what this plan is trying to accomplish. When you take that feedback from the community, where do you take it? Where does that go as you as a trustee? Like, I, I'm trying to just figure out the workflow here. <laughs>
0: I love that question so much. (laughs) Um, Okay, so a big tagline for me right now is process is power. Mm -hmm. If you can figure out how to insert yourself into that process, that's where the power is. Absolutely. And as a woman of color or like perceived individual that doesn't have enough experience, maybe isn't Canadian, et cetera, like all the questions that would come at me. Yeah. Um, it really validates the the reason I'm there, which is to understand the process both for myself as a decision maker, but also how I can make space for those who aren't represented, especially young people mm-hmm. who um, aren't represented and I mean in a voting capacity. And so um, what's really important about how that that information from the community, including um, uh, employee groups, including uh, children and youth who go to the schools, children and youth who can't go to the school or can't access it for whatever reason... Um, parents, general public, when I hear from them, um, my role is really to figure out how it is I can help their voice uh, become the center of our conversation, as opposed to something we consider later, or maybe not at all. And so how that happens is through conversations in Mm -hmm. the community. So going to where people are at, absolutely. Um, But also, um, when you receive communication, taking time to hear what people are saying, and then inviting them to come to these processes. So Mm -hmm. there's committee meetings, and there's opportunities to speak at committee meetings we're always happy to hear from people um i actually find that that's one of the most beautiful moments is when i see children and youth who use the system actually accessing the decision making bodies of their system yeah and i've heard that from youth too like how do i contact the school board
1: <laughs> i'm like that's
0: a really good question yeah here are some ways come to a committee meeting you can submit questions albeit they're in writing mm-hmm. um at uh board meetings which take place every month sometimes okay. more um, and that's also a, I'm very new so I feel like those are some of the the initial platforms that I can think of um, but as well like the surveys are, are an opportunity and other ways of engaging online um, but in person mm-hmm. is also very important like contact us that's what we're here for sure
1: now d- d- um, you know in these community meetings when you're hearing things from the community are you taking what you're hearing and either taking it back to city council if it's a city matter uh, in terms of city planning or, or anything like that, or you take, or, and, and I should say, and are you taking them also back to the province in terms of whether it's funding needs or maybe just understanding that, hey, you know, this school that looks like it's under capacity isn't under capacity, and actually we need more money here because it's funding the X amount of programs. Um, what's the feedback? Again, what's sort of the process in terms of you taking and in, involving people in the community and 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 bringing in the province and council yeah What's that side,
0: like? yeah thanks that's such a good question in terms of like how to illustrate that process so for me personally um, it depends on the issue but I can take um, the anti-black racism uh, motion as an example so when young people brought up an issue that was facing them in schools mm-hmm. um, and I don't want to say like it happened in a, in a one point in time but that issues like racism persist sure. in all elements of society um, and And it's up to us to to act against that and to remove injustices and to address inequities. And so when we're hearing from when I was hearing from students in that way and from parents, um, one of the the ways to engage individuals is to to bring people together mm-hmm. and so and have that conversation, but more importantly, build the process together. yeah um, because truthfully sometimes that that existing process um, has its ways in. but at the same time, there's got to be places where, young people feel safe, where parents feel safe, where you can just talk about what's happened to you from your own personal experience um, in a way that just allows people to listen. Sure. And that happens at committee meetings, and that happens through emails. So in that instance, taking it to um, to engage city partners, okay, um, they told us a lot about some new equity scan work that they're doing and how we can participate. So that's like a, a community aspect, but then also how Equitas International Human Rights Organization is working on a lot of workshops for um, youth training, but also educator training. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so just um, kind of zooming out to see who else can help us solve this. Problem. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, now we've talked about a few different schools. We've talked about schools that are at risk of closing down. We've talked about schools that are uh, over capacity. We've talked about seismic upgrades. Uh, I want to give you the the opportunity and the, and and be able to explain to me. You know, if you were to summarize all the challenges that Vancouver School Board faces right now in this moment, as we're almost approaching the end of the school year, looking forward to the next school year, what are the big challenges that Vancouver School Board faces? In yeah. summary,
0: I, I suppose. I mean, I I never look at things like that. I just feel like systems can always do better. Okay. So in terms of challenges facing us, yeah, like I want to be able, as an educator and as as an advocate for education, to be able to. Um, give a full and complete picture of what it is we're trying to protect and grow now, Mm -hmm. but also where we want this to go long into the future, long after I'm I'm, uh, finished my term as a trustee. Um, And so I I don't really see it that way as like big challenges. I feel like it's always going to be our responsibility to make space for people to enter the process, to have conversations, because we're constantly cycling through new students Mm -hmm. and new families and new educators. And so to stay dynamic is going to be, our biggest strength moving forward. So I feel like our challenge is to be iterative and to ask ourselves tough questions, to invite people to conversations, to have those uncomfortable moments that challenge your perception of what education was, is, or should be, Mm -hmm. um, and just pay attention to what's happening right now, and then bring your strength to the table. So I think that's something I need to remind myself of a lot, is that this isn't about finding a specific solution in a singular way, but it's about a a moving process of education that can be as powerful as we want it to be. Sure.
1: Sure. What would one of those, again, very removed from all of this, so I'm, that's why I'm curious, what would one of those like uncomfortable moments be?
0: Yeah, so many. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, one of those uncomfortable moments is recognizing that I can't be everywhere all the time. Sure. And so when folks let me know that, you know, like oh, I really wish I could be hurt, I feel like I'm not hurt. Mm. I just think for me the challenge is finding the right way To not only let them know which ways they can come and talk to us or me or approach any one of us, but also when they get there, how we welcome them and how we make them feel comfortable. Um, And so for young people, especially, you know, um, there was a young person who presented earlier this week and... She was just magnificent. She had so much courage and overcame her shyness and said, like, you know, she's so shy and and just barely sat at the table. What um, was she presenting on? She was presenting on her experience um as an indigenous student and how important it is to have Indigenous staff.
1: Oh um, wow, okay. At her school. Very yeah, cool.
0: Yeah, and what a difference it's made for her. So hearing from her is arguably one of the most important things. Um mm-hmm. Uh, for me that I, I could have partaken in um, this year, um, but knowing how much she overcame to sit at that table and to be there and how the perception of like whose system this is mm-hmm. can be so gray, um, But I figured, you know, this is your school. Like, if anything, like I'm the guest here yeah not you like i'm only here because of you sure and so just seeing her i just thought like that that's the difference and that's what i want to continue challenging myself on is like who are these spaces for who are these seats at the table for and when folks can't make it there what are we doing what am i doing to bring um the perspectives and knowledge and experience that i'm hearing forward
1: hmm okay interesting um we have to talk about kingsgate mall you recently wrote a piece yeah. in the Tai about this. So the Vancouver School Board actually owns some pretty valuable real estate, including Kingsgate Mall. But before we get in that, into that specific case, I was just curious because I had no idea that the school board itself owned property. I mean, are there other properties that the Vancouver School Board also owns?
0: Um how much mo do you guess that the Vancouver School I board, no, I, board I have no idea I thought means.
1: it was zero until I heard about Kingsgate Mall, so I have no idea. So
0: including all the schools, I've heard I've heard quotes of up to eight billion in property ownership oh, okay. so, in total.
1: Wow. So the Vancouver School Board owns the land or the property that the school's on? It's not that the city owns it or anything.
0: That's like that. right, and that's why it's totally important for the public to pay attention to this stuff. Right. Look at real estate in Vancouver. Yeah, that's the whole point about bringing Kingsgate to the center. That is uh, an amazing example of the opportunities available to us.
1: And so, the school board owns the schools and that those properties, but then also other properties which could be commercial, I guess, and.
0: Yeah, I think there's a whole range of how they're defined. But I mean, there's like all over the city. But I think um, there's little pockets and slivers. um, There's like a work yard. There's strips of lands on the outsides of schools. And sometimes it's split between like a park that's owned by the city or owned by parks board um, or like a sports area. And then the rest of the uh, park or area that's owned by the school. Oh, okay. And so like Britannia, I believe, has like a whole set of ownership. Um, I used to work out of Moberly Elementary that has a whole set of ownership. We tried to do like a community garden with the kids there and we had to get permission from Parks Board, the city and the school board because it was a um, property that was owned by all
1: three. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Not collective ownership as in like each parcel of that property had separate
1: ownership. Interesting, see this again, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah,
0: me too. And only from working there did I realize like, whoa, making a community garden isn't like just getting your shovels and going outside on the school land, yeah. but there's so much to consider. And there's a lot of people there that want to help that work move forward um, from all sides, like the city, the school board and, and parks. Sure. So it was cool in that instance, we got to like come together and learn about land ownership in Vancouver with some
1: new refugee students, which was pretty Interesting. cool. Interesting, okay. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about Kingsgate Mall. One solution to a lot of the challenges that the Vancouver School Board faces in terms of the seismic upgrades or the pressure to cut costs is to sell and liquidate some properties, including Kingsgate Mall, and use these proceeds for facility upgrades. You think that this is a short-sighted approach, and you made the argument in the TIE recently. Can you tell me about why? Can you tell me why you think it's a short-sighted approach?
0: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm always, always um, categorically against um, public uh, lands being sold. Sure. Um, and that's like a really important subject for me. We're on unceded traditional territories of Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. And so this whole conversation is incomplete without these voices at the table. So, mm. it it really. Um, is uncomfortable for me to have the conversation without individuals um, with um, whose land uh, we're on. Sure. And so, um, yeah, so part of my uh, approach is thinking about what else, how else could we gain value from property um, like Kingsgate Mall over a period of time. And so we're also in a situation where there's a Broadway plan coming out, Mm -hmm. um, the Broadway line being extended. So I can only imagine how that area that's already a hub for transit and transportation um, for people, um, for businesses, for transportation, for bikes. You just think about all the things that happen in that area and that the Broadway plan would potentially change our concept of the value of that space yes, and yeah. obviously the financial value of that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So So don't so, sell. Yeah, so That's, don't sell. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and and, util- and 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 as you argued in the Thai piece, like utilize that in terms of perhaps housing or socially assisted housing or, or something like that right that's yes your
0: idea. and actually i just learned today so um and i know this probably has been going on for a while but there's there's a project from the province called housing hub okay and there's opportunities to partner in non-profit ways um, to develop properties in this way oh interesting so it's okay. such an opportunity and you don't have to give up a uh, land ownership in order to to do this kind of work right um and in fact it would in my uh, opinion, would be fiscally um, irresponsible to do so. Sure. yeah, And, and,
1: I, and you know, to, I, I actually completely agree with you. Like, I, I, I'm on board with keeping public assets and not privatizing everything or selling everything in, in the short term to care, take care of short-term costs. But then to play devil's advocate here, you know, where do the funds for the $790 million upgrades that are needed, you know, where do they come from then?
0: not from public land (laughs) no 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 and you know what that's a conversation our province um our provincial government has has declared a commitment to reconciliation our city has declared a commitment to reconciliation so you have to look at other options that is our um responsibility as individuals living and breathing and playing on this land Mm -hmm. and so that it isn't a question for me of of you know how to make it work or we must make it work, um, and it's also just not financially responsible to sell something now sure. that's going to increase in value in a year from now and forever. And we can continue um, gaining financial um, rents from that place from that space by doing something more creative by working with nonprofit housing organizations by working with the city more closely and maintaining public ownership.
1: Sure. Yeah. Interesting. Well it's it, it is gonna be interesting and, and one last question just sort of on this this topic. Um ultimately when it comes to the sale of Kingsgate Mall or any other property that the Vancouver School Board has, does is the decision ultimately made by trustees or who is the decision made for in a hypothetical scenario where you were to sell Kingsgate Mall or any other, any of these
0: properties. Yeah, it's totally,
1: I mean, as far as I know, I think we have that power. So, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So you have a voice there saying that we're not going to sell. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Bringing this all together, obviously the big issue of at least the school year has been potential pending school closures. Are we going to see school closures coming up? Good
0: question. So the board agreed um, and voted to um, remove school closures from the long range facilities plan. Okay. Is it still an option in our policy manual? Absolutely. It's always a policy, mm-hmm. um, which is to be debated for sure. Yeah. Um, and lots of folks have asked us to to consider the removal or moratorium on school closures. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a conversation that's important to have um, and necessary. A, I I campaigned uh, against um, school closures and feel really strongly that neighborhood schools are public interest. Infrastructure that need to be maintained for children mm-hmm. um, no matter how we um, sort of perceive the issue that that's that is the essential purpose of schools and people fought hard to get them to where they are today right sure to, to um, protect that land and make sure that they're accessible throughout
1: the city so short answer: no, no schools are being closed. Nope. <laughs> Great. Well, that's really good to hear. It sounds like you've kept a, a I campaign mean, promise. And
0: now. I'm, I'm, I'm also just making uh, my personal promise. Okay. For that, yes.
1: But, but in terms of what you can see, um, and uh, be, being a trustee and, and and being on that board, you don't see any. School
0: no, not okay. associated um, with long-range facilities plan at this time. Okay. Yeah, so that was, yeah, it yeah. was great. I mean, I think we voted unanimously as well, so.
1: Cool. cool. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that answer. Before I let you go, I want to talk about something uh, that's just separate from all of this, um, but it did sort of come up in terms of Vancouver School Board stuff. Um, vaping has been in the news a lot. Uh, BC Liberal MLA Todd Stone has called vaping an epidemic among BC youth. And apparently a third of BC youth grade 10 to 12 vape once a week, which at least once a week, which is like mind boggling to me because I didn't realize vaping was that popular. Um, And Vancouver School Board actually has a substance use health promotion manager, Art Steinman. And he's saying that, yeah, you know, kids are getting addicted to nicotine because they they start with vaping and they start with the juices or whatever flavors there are. When it comes to something like this, which clearly is, like, a public health issue, but it's also sort of tied to schools as well, you know, where, does, the, does the Vancouver School Board have a certain responsibility here? I mean, obviously, you do have Art Steinman there, um, and his office would be trying to promote public health. Um, what what can the school board do about something like this that is becoming endem- uh, epidemic or endemic in schools?
0: Yeah, that's such a good question. So again, like speaking as an individual, I think I've heard a lot from parents and kids about um, opioid um, issues that are facing uh, children and parents. Um, vaping certainly is is another one of these addictive substances. There's poisonings, there's um, alcohol, there's tobacco, um Online over usage, I mean, the number of issues that young people bring forward uh, Mm -hmm. daily are are astounding. They're faced with so much. And I think that prevention program that you mentioned is actually incredible because, um, well, when I worked at the district, we actually would do sessions in multiple languages so that individuals and parents from different cultural and ethnic groups can participate in the discussion because they may not know what's going on um, based on just like uh, mainstream media Mm -hmm. or what they're hearing. But to understand what your kids are being faced with and for kids to understand um, what parents uh, may or may not uh, be in the know about. Sure. Um, yeah, so I think um, there's a lot that can always be done that it's not just um, for me like an educational issue, but like a societal issue of like how young people are accessing um, substances, but also in in the work of the substance um, prevention and uh, art, Art's job that you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, that it's about knowledge for young people to know what, what is this? And uh, when you're faced with it, what can you do? Or how do you know if your friends in a dangerous situation or your parents? Mm-hmm. Um, who can you call? Um, who can you go to? And the ease of access of those services is arguably also one of the most important things that we can do in education is make things easy to understand and access information about mm-hmm. how to keep yourself safe and healthy. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So I think that'll be ongoing and we learn every day about something. And I think that's um, yeah, it, it will never um, be something that we cease uh, to continue adding information to and challenging ourselves to make sure young people have the information that they need and access to the people that they need to work through these issues.
1: Yeah. Interesting. It, it just strikes me as... Uh... I mean, it strikes me in the sense that I feel old because I didn't know that this was a thing. I didn't know that this was this widespread. And it would seem like if you have a third of students or 16, 18 year olds who are vaping, um, there has to be some sort of consultation, not consultation, but um, on the groundwork to understand why they're all getting you know getting vapes and and jewels and whatever they're called uh and doing this you know a lot about
0: this (laughs) i know that they're called jewels and vapes i don't know there's some (laughs) juice like
1: i i did not realize it was that cool um and i certainly do not understand it but i imagine that to understand and to sort of target the problem because it's not like they're going straight to cigarettes which i guess was the issue before Mm -hmm, when it came mm -hmm. to nicotine use um so it does strike me as a very interesting issue which again extends like all of a lot of these issues i should say extend beyond just education.
0: Yeah, big time. And i think um like to answer kind of your your question that you have is is around um asking young people like how yeah. is this entering your life? Like yeah. where are you getting this stuff? And and do you know like the impacts of of what you're partaking in um, and what to do when it's becoming dangerous for you.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Before I let you go, uh, you don't play in a punk rock band anymore, right? No. So you don't have that uh, to promote?
0: (laughs) I should. I should start an educational punk rock band. Totally. I miss it so much. Yeah, I don't. Not anymore. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if people cannot follow that, then how do people stay informed on school board issues? How do they get in touch with you directly? Uh, Where would you sort of point them to for... Other resources.
0: Definitely. So there's the school board website. So it's vsb.bc.ca. Um, but there's also a way to stay in touch with trustees. And uh, for me in particular, um, I am, am on Facebook as Jennifer Reddy, R-E-D-D-Y. Um, I have a page, Jennifer Reddy School Board Trustee. Okay. Um, and then on Twitter, I'm at Ready for Change. So it's R-E-D-D-Y-F-O-R-C-H-A-N-G-E. Um, but also you can email me. I'm at jennifer.ready, R-E-D-D-Y at V-S-B.bc.ca. Um And yeah, I work at Harbor Center. So come on by at any time. Like my day job's at SFU. So I cool. spend quite a bit of time
1: downtown. Last question before I let you go. I forgot to squeeze this one in. Do school board trustees also take the summer off?
0: What? I don't know. I guess I'll find <laughs> out. I hope so. <laughs> I'm exhausted. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs>
1: are you giving me a holiday? <laughs> I have no idea. I was just, I, it sort of just came to me. I was like, oh, I wonder if, you know, school, I mean, schools are sort of running during the summer. There's stuff going on. Well, right?
0: and I guess that actually is, a, is an interesting question because it's not only about doing um, decision-making or having discussions or making decisions um, about a particular issue at that point in time, but it's all the time. You mm-hmm. have to like read about so many issues and you have to like, dive deep so and be present in the community. So, yeah, I would say it doesn't stop, at least for me. I yeah. mean, I'm looking forward to going to events. I've already been invited to some in the summer. So okay. I hope I can get back in touch with some of the youth and the parents and the families. Cool. Um, so invite me to stuff, <laughs> please. We
1: well, uh, I really appreciate you being here. I learned a lot about school board, a lot I had <laughs> no idea about. And uh, you really presented it in a very clear and articulate way. So, thank you so much. For
0: I here. hope it was clear and articulate. And to anyone who's like wondering about other issues or wants to continue the dialogue, like please do. Like that's the only way we can be good at collaborative decision making is if we talk about issues, um, and we're not worried about being um, uh, engaged in difficult conversations and learning. Uh, from the process. So I recognize I have knowledge gaps. I don't want to be like an authoritative person. Um, That's not how I approach this. So I just appreciate the chance to shed some light on where I'm at with the process of being a trustee and just hope to stay in touch and um, keep people informed with school board issues because it's our whole public system. It's for everyone.
1: I love that attitude. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you, Mo. Ladies and gentlemen, she is a Vancouver school board trustee representing One City Vancouver. She is Jennifer Reddy. And I'm Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.